Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Stephanie Skanderis, in for Brent Banbury. This is Day 6. Several fast-growing wildfires have triggered a number of new evacuation orders and alerts. We are expecting significant growth, and we are expecting our resources to be challenged. We have never experienced anything like this at all. We've got some tough days ahead in terms of conditions. There's no denying that. It's a tragedy for a lot of folks. How to build fire-resilient communities. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Taylor Swift versus the World Cup. The city is saying every single day that it's broke. Which one is better for a city's economy? Gandhi's great-grandson. I am intolerant, brutal India. Reflecting on India at a crossroads. And that Tupper feeling. She built the empire that we all know. The woman who made Tupperware what it is today. All today on Day 6, the Keeping It Fresh edition. Firefighters were faced with challenging conditions on the fire today. Uh, They were removed from their posts on multiple occasions for their own safety. Uh, Places could not be found uh, in order to anchor and fight this fire. British Columbia is under a provincial state of emergency this morning as wildfires continue to spread across the province. 15,000 people in BC are now under evacuation orders, with a further 20,000 on evacuation alert. They came to our side because they're on evac, and now we have a fire on our side. And it's just north of us, so we're getting out now. As the McDougal Creek wildfire began to spread, communities in the area of West Kelowna began to evacuate before the fire jumped Lake Okanagan and forced the evacuation of the city of Kelowna. Officials say a significant number of homes have been destroyed already. Meanwhile, in the Northwest Territories earlier this week, the entire city of Yellowknife was ordered to evacuate due to encroaching fires. If the same thing happens in Yellowknife that happened in in Hawaii, this could be very dramatic for the territory. So I'm scared of losing the stories. I'm scared of losing the, the friendships. I'm scared that this this could be the last time I saw all my friends in one location. Many evacuees in Canada were thinking this week of Hawaii, where a wildfire last week caused catastrophic damage to the town of Lahaina. Places that used to generally be considered safe from wildfire could now be more at risk than we once thought. And in the event that fire does strike, many communities might find themselves underprepared. Eric Kennedy is Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Eric, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me. This week, we've been hearing about Lahaina, the Northwest Territories, and Kelowna. But this is so much bigger. Just this year, we've seen Tantalan, Set Eel, Barrington Lake, many, many more. It feels like the threat to communities by wildfires is on the rise. Is that true? 
Yeah, this certainly has been a very big wildfire year. And we see year-to-year variation. So where is most affected changes from year to year. But there are stressors that lead to wildfire being more prominent these days. Climate change is certainly one of them. But there are other things that are changing too. There are changes in where we're building our communities and where we're living and where we're working that can create more sparks and create more risk when fires do occur there. We also, as we've seen in Hawaii, have changes to ecosystems. So things like non-native grasses that are coming in and are highly flammable. And so it's really all of these different forces multiplying together that are leading to the fire loads that we're seeing today. If we're looking specifically at communities, what factors might make a community at greater risk of being affected or even destroyed by wildfire? Some of these recent wildfires have reminded us that the fire risk exists in places that we might not think of as being stereotypically forested. So when you see a forest fire in a forested community, that might feel like something you're expecting, but fires like we've seen in Hawaii and in Colorado have reminded us that wildfire can occur even in places that are just grasslands. The challenge is that fire doesn't discriminate in what it burns. It doesn't really care if it's burning a tree or a home. If it's flammable, it can contribute to the fire and it can propagate the fire forward. So often in these kinds of community fires, what we see is home-to-home transmission, for instance, that only a portion of the home losses are because of the fire itself, but rather a lot of the losses are because of spread from building to building. And so if you have buildings and homes that are vulnerable to fire, not only are they at risk, but they can increase the risk for other structures too. Mm -hmm. And then if we look at the ways in which places are responding, earlier this week, we saw the mayor of Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories thanking the town for the awesome evacuation. What factors play into a good evacuation or an awesome one? In an evacuation like that, there are a few things that we're looking for. We're um, certainly looking for good engagement from the community. So is, is there good response and uptake? Something I would be looking for is the equity in this. Is everyone being assisted, even if they have different means? So for some people, if you're single, you have a car, you have a flexible job you can do from your laptop, it's really easy to evacuate. But imagine that you have kids, you might not have a vehicle, you might have work that requires you to be in person, that can make it really challenging. So I would be looking at, is the evacuation equitable? And then in fires, there's also a real desire to see evacuations when they occur happen well before the fire. What we saw in Hawaii, tragically, was the potential consequence of a very hurried evacuation as the fire is approaching. And so we think that it's possible to reduce many of these risks by getting people out of harm's way before they're evacuating in the midst. Now that raises all sorts of ethical questions about how often we ought to evacuate, how early we have to evacuate, how sure we should be about the fire. And these are playing out globally in Canada and Australia and the United States and Europe as we try to figure out what the right balance is. Also, when wildfire hits a community, there are other effects as well, right? These knock-on effects, not just the fire itself. Things like communications, internet going down, loss of power, lack of clean water. How should we be preparing for secondary impacts like that? 
So there are, there are a bunch of examples of this. One that you've just pointed to is the loss of communication infrastructure. We've seen in fires before, if you lose telecommunications like cell phone towers or physical phone lines, if you lose power or water supply, these can be devastating to responding to the event itself. You can also see effects that ripple forward from the fire in the days and weeks and months and years that follow. So drinking water access is a great example of this. You can see lots of contamination and sediment buildup from the fire itself, from the ash, even sometimes from the firefighting efforts that can affect the ability to get safe drinking water, not just during the fire, but in the weeks, months and years following. Can you lay out the plan for me, like if you had an unlimited budget to build or adapt a community to make it more resistant to wildfires, what would you do? I think the first thing I would do is encourage people to think about the way that investments in preparedness can really have a a just critical impact on the events that happen during the disaster. For every dollar that we spend in preparedness, we get many, many dollars back later on in costs that we avert, whether that's firefighting or or losses. And so if we can change the way we do the financing of disasters and perhaps shift some of the money from the response into the preparedness work, that would be critical. The other thing that I would be doing is I would look at how we can design communities that can perhaps have fire wash over them without the tragic consequences we've seen too much this year. We need communities where the houses have even basic um, adaptations, like the requirements to have covers over some of the places where sparks could come in, to keep eaves troughs clean, to get the vegetation cut back, all of those basic modifications to reduce the flammability of the materials, the structure, and the property will make a big difference. In other words, we have to change how we think about fire, right? This notion that the firefighters will stop every single fire doesn't hold anymore. We have to be ready for fire to come in and perhaps survive without these kinds of tragic consequences. Well, what do you think it would take to get policymakers and communities as invested in this systemic wildfire prevention as maybe they currently are in firefighting? We have to have this paradigm shift that stops seeing emergencies only in the crisis moment, right? Seeing them when they're catching the headlines and begins to understand emergencies as a symptom of underlying problems. Sometimes these are going to be subtle changes to how budgets work. So for instance, we might want to adjust so that there is more in the operating budget for fire management agencies that is earmarked specifically for preparedness work. We might need to increase the number of year-round personnel who can be doing fire management planning, for instance, to get ready for these fire seasons, rather than just having such a surge of personnel during the summer. But it's also that broader paradigm shift of being committed to doing the heavy lifting of preparedness and not just swooping in during the crisis. Eric, it does seem like a problem we're unfortunately going to have to be thinking about more and more. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me. Eric Kennedy is Associate Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. What we are seeing is disturbing rises in both support for political violence and also actual threats. A Texas woman is facing jail time after she threatened to kill the federal judge who is overseeing a criminal case against Donald Trump in Washington. The judge, who is black, is one of several public officials to face racist and violent threats over their involvement in criminal cases against Trump. 
Trump is currently facing four indictments, including most recently an indictment handed down Monday in Georgia over 2020 election interference. After that announcement, the names, addresses and pictures of the grand jury members who indicted the former president began circulating on far-right websites. Trump's first trial date has been set for March of 2024. And... It's staggering to see the elevation in the amount of overdoses that we're seeing still. The opioid crisis in British Columbia has reached a tragic new milestone. According to data released this week by BC's Centre for Disease Control, fatal drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death among BC youth between the ages of 10 and 18. Drug-related deaths, particularly from fentanyl, have been a leading cause of fatalities for British Columbians aged 19 to 39 for years. But this is the first time the threat has been so high for kids and teens. BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions acknowledged the figures this week, saying that more must be done to address the crisis. Drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death across three major age categories in BC from age 10 to 59. Still to come on day six, as India grapples with political violence, the great-grandson of Mahatma Gandhi on his family's legacy and the country's future. I'm Stephanie Skanderis, in for Brent Bambury. I almost yelled out in the locker room, did not do that. I held it back a little bit, but I was absolutely so shocked and so excited that I, I got a code. A code. A chance at a Taylor Swift ticket in Toronto. If you never made it out of the waitlist, you're in the good company of around 30 million people. T-Swift's six shows in Toronto next year are estimated to draw some 300,000 concert goers with a big economic boon on the line for the city. Think about the closing ceremony of the Olympics happening six times over attracting a new set of fans that are paying $250 face value per ticket. Multiply that by approximately five times. Yeah, that's a big sum. So big, in fact, some say it's making Toronto's World Cup deal look bad. The city will be hosting a part of the 2026 World Cup Games along with the U.S. and Mexico. April Engelberg is a lawyer and a former Toronto City Council candidate. David Valentin is principal at Liaison Strategies, and they're both huge Taylor Swift fans. Together, April and David crunched the numbers and wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star this week titled, Taylor Swift's Toronto Concerts Reveal Bad World Cup Deal for Toronto. April, David, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Good morning. So I just want to start with getting something straight. Who is the bigger Swifty here? David, is it you? I think it should be. I threw a Taylor Swift birthday party. It was a mm. club night in Toronto on her birthday. On a Monday night, we sold it out and gave $4,000 to the cancer charity she supports. So I think that's a pretty good resume builder. That's really great, David. The main point, though, is that I've been a Taylor Swift fan for 12 years now. Uh, sorry, longer than 12 years, but I've been going to her concerts now for 12 years. And and that's true, I suppose. You've, you've gone to a few more concerts than I have, but I feel like I also went to the Eras Tour in Detroit this year already, and you didn't, so. Ooh, burn. Okay, so I did try to go to the Eras Tour in New York, 
and the tickets were $3,000. So I tagated when you're one of 20,000 people outside the venue just listening. And I was dressed up as a refrigerator for the lyric and all too well. Okay, I don't want to start a fight. I actually don't. So we're just gonna we're just gonna call it even. Clearly, you are both major Taylor Swift fans. I give it to you both. You both win. But April, what is it about Taylor Swift coming to Toronto that got you thinking about the 2026 World Cup. Yeah, so it was just a great juxtaposition because David and I were on the phone a lot trying to figure out how we were going to get tickets. And then I just made the statement, Taylor Swift is going to be better for ta- for Toronto's economy than hosting the World Cup. Did you have and anything to back that up or you just, it was a hunch? I had a strong hunch and I knew that we were spending $300 million to host the World Cup and nothing to host Taylor Swift. And she was playing six shows, whereas the World Cup, we were only getting five of the games. So with that basic knowledge, we then went to go do the math. Okay, and David, 300,000 people are expected to attend Taylor Swift's concerts in Toronto. What's your estimate of what that translates to in terms of economic activity for the city? Well, our estimate is 420 to $460 million of economic activity. And I want to say that's a very conservative number because there are other economists that put it at closer to $700 million. So we use two numbers. One is the uh, estimate for Taylor Swift's North American United States tour. We took that number. We used the approximate number of shows in the States and the ones in Canada to come up with the first number, the 460. And then we took economic estimates from the shows in Denver, how much GDP was generated there. And we saw, okay, Denver's getting two shows, we're getting six. So there's some calculations and some mathematics we can do to get to the 420 number. And that's our range. And these are U.S. figures, so it actually could be more in in Canadian dollars. And the important thing to note is, you know, every single city she's been to, she sold out hotel rooms, she sold out restaurants, she sold out parking spaces. And we've seen, you know, the Federal Reserve writing reports about Taylor Swift's economic activities. Okay, you've done your research on this. But April, what about the World Cup? Look, soccer is big, right? The World Cup is big as well. What's the estimate on the crowds that that will draw? We know that Toronto is spending $300 million to host the World Cup, and it's only estimated to bring in $307 million. We're getting only five games. Toronto isn't the only city hosting. There's many different cities across North America hosting. And each game out of the five will host around 45,736 fans. So we multiplied that by five. So Taylor Swift will be holding around 300,000 fans and the World Cup will be significantly less. Over 200,000, but still less. But look, David, There's more than monetary value to hosting a World Cup, right? It's a chance to shine on the world stage. It's a chance to be seen as a city that's capable of such a feat. Sport has a way of bringing people together. Isn't that stuff worth anything? I think it is to a certain extent. And I think it's important for people to know that the city of Toronto bid is just that. It's only funded by the city of Toronto. There's no provincial involvement. There's no federal involvement. And and part of that problem is the city is saying every single day that it's broke. That there's no money for shelter spaces, there's no money for transit, there's no money for housing. I think the city has to be financially responsible. And if it has these big priorities, if it says these are urgent challenges that need to be met, you can't take $300 million away and spend it on something that, while important, while helpful, is really just a luxury. Is part of this personal, though? I mean, I know you guys are big Taylor Swift fans. Are you big soccer fans, too? I come from a really big soccer family. And, you know, my dad has watched every single World Cup, Euro Cup. And I was a little nervous to show him my op-ed. But he actually agreed with it. 
And he said, really? well, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't want to be rude to anyone, but I think his words were, well, FIFA is sort of corrupt. Listen, it's, I don't think it's that, but we have people who can't have a safe place to stay in the winter and we see them freeze. That's not a situation we want to be in. The interesting thing about soccer is it's supposed to be really low cost. Unlike hockey, unlike some other sports, it's supposed to be super accessible. All you need is a field and a ball, right? And you should be able to play. But in this circumstance, we're seeing that actually there's this huge financial impediment to pulling this off. This is one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys about, because obviously we have Canadian soccer teams now that are doing really well, that are playing at a world-class level. The women, of course, have been there for a while. Soccer is the fastest growing sport in this country. It is supposed to be more accessible, like you're saying. It's a much cheaper sport to get into than hockey. Could the argument be made that the investment in the World Cup is a more long-term investment versus just a one-time concert? April, what do you think? I understand that argument. For example, upgrading some of our facilities so there might be better training areas for players in the future. But that part of the investment in the World Cup is maybe maximum 10 million or so out of the 300 million that we're spending. The majority of the money is not going to that. And I think, you know, if people want to show there's a future for soccer in Canada, why not sign a deal with the men's team? Why not sign a deal with the women's team? These are two teams that uh, don't have deals right now with Soccer Canada, or Canada Soccer, I should say. So I think if they wanted to show Canadians that they're serious about the future, why not treat the players that are on the field right now with respect? You both have gone as far as to say that Toronto should cut its losses completely, pull out of hosting this part of the World Cup. That comes at a cost, right? Wouldn't that come with hefty fines? The city of Toronto is spending $300 million. They're probably on track to lose about $270, $280 million. And that's if there are no further cost overruns. So if the city is going to lose $280 million, it would save money even if the cancellation cost came out to $100 million, right? It would save $180 million if the cancellation fees were $100 million. That's more than enough money. That's more than the city is asking the federal government for to fix all of the shelter problems it has in the city. April, do you think that there could be another way of looking at this? Like, look, what if I want to go to Taylor Swift and I want soccer? What if it doesn't have to be either or? Vancouver is another host city. The plan that they've come up with is to impose a 2.5% hotel tax that's going to cover most of their cost for hosting. Could Toronto look at something like that? Do you think something like that is feasible here? I would say we need a better deal. So we need to go back and look at the deal that the city has signed with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and come up with something that makes more sense. Of course, if we compare it to Taylor Swift, she's not costing us anything. So it's a great deal. I said that I would like to see Taylor Swift, but I cannot get tickets to that. But magically, you both have. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. How did you do it? So I made a list of every single person I knew who I thought wouldn't want to go to the concert and then asked them very nicely and sometimes a little less nicely. They could please, please register on my behalf. And I tracked 32 people who signed up. And from the 32 people, we got a code. And from the code, we got my tickets. Just really took it seriously. Taylor Swift says, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So I took her words very seriously, very seriously, and said, 
I want to go. I want to see her in Toronto, and I'm going to make sure it happens. I did. I went with the approach of you have to embarrass yourself, basically, to get tickets. So remember how I said I have dressed up in costume for all Taylor Swift shows? So I just posted on Facebook and Instagram, you know, pictures of me in my costumes over the years and asking everyone to please help me by trying to get codes. And if you had a code, let me know, etc. And what ended up happening is I actually ran for city council last year. And this girl that I met last summer when I was campaigning outside a grocery store sent me a message like in response to my desperate plea and said, I'm going to try to get you tickets. And I thought nothing of it really, because what were the odds? And then she messaged me again the next week to say, I got a code, like, let's go. I'm We're getting tickets. So yeah, I'm going to the Taylor Swift show with my sister and I haven't figured out what our costume is going to be this time, but it will be lyric related. Amazing. Well, congratulations to you both. You have given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. April Engelberg is a lawyer and a former Toronto City Council candidate. David Valentin is principal at Liaison Strategies. We reached out to the City of Toronto for comment. They told us the FIFA World Cup will generate 3,300 jobs in the city. That's from Tuesday's official Independence Day ceremonies at the historic Red Fort in Delhi, India. This week marked India's 77th independence anniversary. And despite the passage of time, there's still no figure more singularly associated with India's fight against British rule as Mahatma Gandhi. But after 10 years of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist BJP, Mahatma Gandhi's legacy is now being openly attacked and even vilified in India. In fact, according to Gandhi's great-grandson Tushar Gandhi, an ideology of hate is consuming his country. He says the result could be worse than anyone dares to imagine. Tushar Gandhi is a writer, an activist, and the director of the Gandhi Research Foundation. He joins me now from India. Tushar Gandhi, good morning and welcome to the program. Thank you so very much. Good morning to all of you in Canada and wherever you're listening to me from. It's been 77 years since your great-grandfather and his generation won independence for India. When you think about that in the context of the last 10 years of Narendra Modi and his ruling BJP, what comes to your mind? Well, what we have managed, and I wouldn't blame only Modi and his uh, government for this, but I blame all of us, is that uh, in these 77 years, we have managed to create an India of uh, our founder's worst nightmare. And that is very sad reflection on all of us who believe ourselves to be the carriers of the legacy of Gandhi and the founders of India, a pluralistic, inclusive India that they dreamt of. Uh, we have turned into a, a isolationist, intolerant, brutal India, unfortunately. Last week, you went to participate in a Quit India Day event. Quit India was a movement started by Mahatma Gandhi in 1942. It demanded the British quit India, leave India. Now, this is something you participate in every year, but 
This year was different, right? Briefly, what happened? Well, uh, suddenly we, the police considered us to be a threat to the law and order situation. And uh, at the last minute decided that we would not be allowed to do our peaceful march, which lasts hardly about an hour. When I left home to join the march, uh, I was stopped and then taken to the police station and kept over there for three hours. This was the first time that a bunch of peaceful citizens and not even a mob, just about 50 of us barely come together every year. And our leader is a 99-year-old freedom fighter. We were considered to be a threat. It was surprising, but I guess we have to get used to these kind of restrictions on our liberties. What does that tell you about the state of things in your country? Well, I pity our rulers who feel so threatened by uh, a bunch of people whose only intention was to carry forward the message of love to conquer hate, which is becoming predominant in Indian society, tragically becoming very normalized. Hate and uh, violence is becoming normalized very rapidly. And so we thought that we would use this Quit India anniversary to start a campaign of love against hate. Uh, Unfortunately, the administration thought that that was a dangerous message to be allowed. And so we were stopped. The idea of India, which our founders uh, had and on which they established a nation with multiples of religion, caste, languages, regionalities and everything. And despite all the disparities for 70 years, we lived pretty peacefully. It's only in the last eight years where hatred as a tool of political dominance has been very successfully used. And we have succumbed to that. And I think it is because the prejudices were never dealt with. The prejudices remained and it was very easy for political opportunists to exploit them and uh, ensure that they had electoral success. Something else we've been noticing over the past little while is the man who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi in 1948, uh, Nathuram Godse, he's been getting increasing praise and attention in recent years. How do you explain that? Uh, you must understand that the ideology behind Bapu's murder is the ideology which is in power today, the political party that is the spawn of the RSS, the BJP rules India. And RSS was directly involved in the murder. Mavnaturam Godse, the murderer, was one of the founders of the RSS, a member from right its inception. The RSS very shrewdly distanced itself from Godse after the murder, but uh, the entire Godse family uh, always claimed that they were active members of the party. And now that party rules in several states in India. And they have always worshipped uh, Godse as their hero and martyr. And now that they are in power, it has become official. Although the prime minister, when he's abroad, pretends to be a Gandhi worshipper, but he sits with people who have abused and insulted Gandhi in parliament and in his party meetings, sharing dais with them. People who have carried out mock murders of Gandhi by firing bullets on his photographs and on his statue and distributing sweets after that are his party colleagues. And his party and the RSS have for a long time secretly worshipped Naturam Godse, only after their ascent 
to power and uh, acceptance by the public. They started worshipping him and idolizing him openly. And now it has become official. I think for many people outside of India, your great-grandfather Mahatma Gandhi, totally recognizable, pretty synonymous with India, still broadly seen as a great historic world figure. What's happening to his image now in India? How is he being seen today? His image now in India is an object of hate and and ridicule and uh, insult. He is no longer the father of the nation. Uh, They refuse, very openly refuse to accept that the new India that is being forged, the Hindu India that is being forged, doesn't deserve a person like Gandhi. So I am not surprised by the development. I think uh, Gandhi is much more secure and safe abroad than he any longer is in the country that he helped liberate. Hmm. And can you help us understand that a little bit more? How do you explain to people outside India how and why his image has changed so much? For a long time after having him murdered, the ideology that hated Gandhi carried on a campaign of disinformation against Gandhi. And unfortunately, Gandhians, people like me who claim to be Gandhians, kept turning the other cheek and ignoring this campaign and saying that, you know, we don't need to respond, it'll go away. Till two or three generations grew up believing those lies to be the truth, blaming Gandhi for the partition, blaming Gandhi for the horrors that happened after the partition, blaming Gandhi for being a Muslim uh, appeaser, blaming Gandhi for being anti the, the, the benefit of Hindus, All these arguments and charges against Gandhi, two to three generations have grown up believing them to be the truth. And they are in the forefront of hating Gandhi. And unfortunately, people like me, we behaved like ostriches and said that, you know, these people, the lunatic fringe will go away. It can't last. Lies don't last. Truth lasts. But unless the truth is spoken of, it is not heard. And that is where we erred. And that is where... We contributed to this situation where today Gandhi is on the margins and we are even more on the margins because of our inactivity. So what do you want to see for India? Do you see a way back from what's happening in your country? What what do you think needs to change? Being a believer in Gandhi, I'm always an optimist. I never give up hope. And so as long as I am allowed, I will continue to keep fighting spreading my message. Unfortunately, now, uh, because we have less people willing to listen to our message in India, we have to take it out to the world. And so I base my strategy on the message that my great-grandfather gave to the world in 1930 on the eve of the salt satyagraha when he To a Canadian journalist, he gave this message saying, I want world sympathy in this battle of right against might. Today, the liberal, secular, inclusive voices in India are fighting a battle of right against might. And once again, we need world sympathy in that. And so I'm thankful for people like you and your organization for this this audience to speak to and spread our message to. Okay, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tushar Gandhi is a writer and activist. He's the director of the Gandhi Research Foundation, and he's the great-grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. Still to come on day six, the story of Brownie Wise, the woman who brought Tupperware to the masses. 
Brownie completely transformed the lives of tens of thousands of working class women. I'm Stephanie Skenderis, in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Particularly before COVID, we saw about 2,000 cases of malaria in the United States each year. What is different this time and why we put out the health notice to doctors and to the public is we had five cases of domestically acquired malaria, meaning people got it from in the United States. Earlier this summer, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control issued an alert about the rise in locally acquired cases of malaria in Florida and Texas, the first domestically acquired cases in 20 years. Now that people are traveling again post-COVID, they're going to other countries, some of them are getting infected with malaria and bringing the parasites home with them. When they return to the U.S. and get bitten by a mosquito, the insect then picks up the pathogens, it bites someone else, and then passes on the illness to another human. That's what they mean by locally acquired. So people in Florida and Texas have gotten malaria without ever leaving the country. And rising temperatures and increased amounts of rain as a result of climate change are creating the perfect breeding ground ripe for mosquitoes. After years of decline, the global rates of malaria and malaria deaths are on the rise. Unfortunately, in the past uh, six or seven years, we've seen a decline in that uh, progress in reducing malaria, and it's actually starting to get worse again. The decline was principally a result of the use of uh, anti-vector controls, insecticide-treated nets, indoor residual spraying, and the wider distribution of uh, anti-malarial drugs, but that has actually not uh, been able to take it down to zero, and as a consequence, it's rebounding now. So the global situation is still dire. There's a quarter of a billion people who are at risk of the disease and and about a a quarter of a million approximately who still die every year of the disease. That's Anthony James. He's a vector biologist at the University of California, Irvine. He studies insects that transmit infectious disease pathogens among humans. While malaria is treatable to those who have access to medication, it can be deadly to those who don't. In 2021, more than 600,000 people died of malaria around the world, many of them children under the age of five. Medication and insecticides are the main tools used to fight the spread of malaria, but they're not enough. So he's working to change the mosquitoes themselves, going back to his roots in genetics. He spent years studying mosquitoes, and right now his team is in phase one of an effort to make the mosquitoes immune to malaria. That way they can't pass it on to humans. One of the very surprising things, to me at least, uh, was the fact that one or a very small number of genes had a profound impact on the ability of the mosquito to transmit or not transmit a disease. And so we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to use 
the skill set that we have in genetics and molecular biology to take those genes and make them uh, very frequent in the mosquitoes so that the mosquitoes would no longer transmit. I mean, there's a desire, of course, to try to get rid of all the mosquitoes, and that's been the efforts of the past hundred plus years, and we just haven't been able to do it. Um, we get rid of them for a while and they just come back. So the idea here is to target the pathogens of things that cause the disease in the mosquito and prevent the mosquito from transmitting them. So Professor James is working to modify the genes in mosquitoes with the help of another pest, mice. What is important here is we're taking advantage of the fact that there are many different malaria parasites, some that infect people and some that infect mice. And ones that infect mice don't infect people, and ones that infect people don't infect mice. So if you give the mice a human parasite, it will mount a very strong immune response and fight off the human parasites. And we have the technology to go in and identify and obtain that component of the immune system, the antibody producing genes from the mouse that allow us to fight off the human parasite, uh, change those in a way that allows us to put them into the mosquito. And essentially what we've done is given the mosquito a piece of the mouse immune system that allows it to fight off human malaria. And that way now the mosquito can no longer transmit human malaria. Given that the genetic makeup of the mosquitoes is being changed, there are questions about whether or not they should be genetically modified. Because once these mosquitoes are released, there's no bringing them back. And Professor James says that's all taken into consideration. So while new technologies have the potential for some risks uh, because we've never used them before, so we have no idea uh, at the outset what's likely to happen. And so this is why we've adopted what's called a phase system of testing, very similar to what's used for the rollout of drugs, for example. And so phase one, it's just to answer the question, can you actually make these things uh, in the laboratory? And if you can, then address some of the questions that people have in terms of concerns about what the potential risk would be. The two major concerns aren't so much about the mosquito itself, but whether changing it will affect other organisms or affect the ecosystem where they live. Professor James hopes to move out of the lab and into phase two within the next year or two, pending regulatory approval. We're looking at island situations where we have islands that are sufficiently far enough away from the mainland that there's no movement of mosquitoes between those islands and the mainland. And we'd like to do a field release in this island setting just to see if the dynamics of the system perform the way we expect to. Um, the islands that we're thinking about do have malaria so that if these systems work well, um, they will have an immediate benefit. But the initial thing is just to ask how they would function and then monitor for uh, unexpected outcomes that many people are concerned about. This would give us the opportunity to do that. And it's worth noting that all of his work is open access, meaning it's out there for others to use. We're not in this to make money. We're in this to um, try to develop a technology that could be applicable to uh, healthcare personnel in countries that need this kind of stuff. Anthony James is a vector biologist with the University of California, Irvine.
that tupper feeling. Sounds good, right? Investors sure seem to think so. Earlier this month, Tupperware's share prices soared by, wait for it, 700%. The prices have come back down to earth since then, but it was a bizarre twist of fortunes for the company, which told the world in April that it was at risk of going out of business. Experts say the stock's sudden rise was sparked by investors looking to short sell and make a quick buck. Not exactly the same sort of hype the brand inspired back in the 50s and 60s, when it's Tupperware where parties were all the rage. All you have to do is invite about 12 or 15 of your friends to drop over some afternoon or evening for a party, and I'll help you put it on. Tell them we'll have lots of fun. And then I suppose you take orders from the guests? Yes, but no high-pressure selling. Tupperware didn't actually invent these sales parties, but the art was perfected by Brownie Wise, a sales superstar with the company. And when she brought Tupperware parties to the masses, she helped unlock a new level of financial freedom and independence for a lot of women. You know, back then it was a masculine world. Wives done what their husbands told them to do without arguing. I guess my generation is the one that broke that up. Lori Kahn is a filmmaker. She made a documentary called Tupperware that tells the story of an empire built out of bowls that burped. And she spoke to Brent Banbury about it back in April. Here's that conversation. Lori Kahn, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Lori, how was Tupperware invented? So Tupperware was invented by a guy named Earl Silas Tupper. And it was just after World War II, and DuPont had developed a new plastic called polyethylene to insulate radar wires. And they were sending out blocks of this material. Hmm. And Earl Tupper um, had a little Ma and Pa plastics factory, and he fiddled and diddled with it and developed his first product, which was his Wonder Bowl, which was the sort of famous shaped bowl. I'm sure you've seen it with a seal that you could seal tight. And it was really novel in its day. Is that the bowl that burps? That is the bowl that burps. <laughs> That's exactly okay. right. So Earl Tupper comes up with this futuristic product, but it takes a while for it to become popular with customers. Who was Brownie Weiss? And what role did she play in helping this product take off? So Earl was a clever tinkerer and inventor, but he was not good at marketing. And his product was sitting on department store shelves gathering dust. And one day he gets a call from a woman named Brownie Wise, who never got past eighth grade. And she gets on the phone and she says, my order is late again. And I insist on speaking to Mr. Tupper himself. <laughs> and Mr. Tupper gets on the phone and he says, what are you doing? You're selling more than all the department stores. And she said, home parties. You should take it out of the department stores and only sell it at home parties. He was intrigued and said, would you be willing to fly east? I'll pay your way. She flew east and he basically hired her on the spot. And she built the empire that we all know. How did she create and motivate the sales force that pushed this product into every home? So home parties were a new way of doing direct selling. Instead of having a man, for example, with a suitcase full of product knocking cold on doors, home parties relied on women inviting their neighbors, their family, their friends, 
they would play games, they had fun, and then at the end they would take orders from the guests. Brownie perfected home party selling, but what really powered her success was the fact that she understood the position of women in the, in the early 1950s who had very few options, especially working class women. I mean, most jobs weren't open to them. And so here was something that somebody without a college education could do part-time, could control their own hours, and not threaten their husbands. They could say, oh, honey, I'm just having parties. I mean, Brownie completely transformed the lives of tens of thousands of working class women. Brownie Weiss found a way to reward women in the post-Second World War economy and, and found a place for them. Describe some of the ways she innovated and made it fun to sell this innovative product. So Brownie Wise had these wonderful extravaganzas in Florida that were called the annual Tupperware Jubilees. And Brownie dreamt up these themes each year. So the first theme was the big dig. So it was based on the gold rush. And they had buried prizes in the ground, right? In Tupperware containers, of course. Right. And these women who come dressed in their jeans and their kerchiefs and sort of Western gear and their hats, they're all lined up and they're told, okay, now go find a shovel and dig. And they go running out to the shovels and they dig, dig, dig. And out of these Tupperware containers, they have diamond rings and, wow. you know, a certificate that says you've won a car. I mean, they were getting things that they had never dreamed that they would get. Right. I mean, they were just crazy, wonderful things that nobody who went to Harvard Business School would ever dream <laughs> up. From my 21st century perspective, I imagine these Tupperware parties and the sales forces of the 1950s as being primarily suburban and white. Is that accurate? No, it's not at all accurate. Huh. The sales force was suburban, some of it, also urban, people who lived in working class, people who lived in three-story walk-ups in the mm -hmm. middle of cities, you know, ethnic neighborhoods, and also rural, sort of poor people who lived on farms all over the country. And the other thing that's interesting is it was all races. It was people who were divorced, who were married, who were disabled, who were from all different religions. Brownie Wise had this motto, this is something that's available. It's an opportunity for literally anyone. How did Brownie Weiss's career with Tupperware come to an end? Well, Earl Tupper was entranced with his own product and thought that his dishes should be on the cover of every magazine. And what happened early on, the people who ran Tupperware, Brownie and Earl and a few others, went to go meet with an advertising firm in New York. And mm -hmm. they suggested that they weren't the only people around who had interesting products and selling mechanisms. But a corporate leader who is a woman, they said, that's amazing. And Brownie has the personality to pull this off. Mm -hmm. So they did push that. And Brownie was the first woman ever on the cover of Business Week magazine. She was lauded in the press. And I think Earl, he didn't want the attention himself, but he wanted his products to have the attention. And I think it really bothered him to see Brownie getting so much credit. So he fired her. Well, 
Justin Dart of Rexall Dr Drug and Chemical came and said, your business is doing so well, I'd like to buy it, but I'm not going to buy it with a female executive. And it was a complete shock to Brownie. She didn't see it coming at all. If Brownie Weiss were around today, do you think she would know what to do with this company in decline? I think that she would try and galvanize women. I mean, that was what she was really good at. Mm -hmm. But the world has changed. Yeah. Women have many more opportunities than they did then. A really big question I have is, would Brownie have been able to pivot and sell other products the way someone like Martha Stewart has? Mm -hmm and make Tupperware, which was such a trusted brand, you know, stand for quality in other things? And I don't know the answer to that question. She was fired before she got a chance. It is an amazing story. Lori Kahn, thank you very much for telling us about Brownie. Oh, I'm glad to. I think the world should know more about her. Lori Kahn is the filmmaker behind the Peabody award-winning documentary, Tupperware, her conversation with Brent Banbury first aired on day six in April. Rift from the headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Look up, 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 look up. was Igor Sunny with Brighter Skies, Dee Dee Jackson with Meteor Man, and Mauve with Night Sky. Brian McLeod of Harrow, Ontario, guessed the headline we were looking for. The Perseid Meteor Shower put on a dazzling light show last weekend. Congratulations, Brian. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. What is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put Rift from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day six tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six. Rift from the headlines. That's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tedessa, with technical support from Laura Antonelli, Aronde Williams, and Will Yar. 
Our intern is Chris Slade. Our digital producer is Philip Drost. Our senior producer this week is Julian Uzielli. I'm Stephanie Skanderis, in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6. Taylor Swift says, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.